So, uh, Acts chapter 5, I'll start reading it. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. If you remember at the end of chapter 4, which we read last week, or this part of chapter 4 that we read last week, uh, Barnabas had sold uh, part of his land, and, uh, or some of his land, and given uh, the money to the, the, uh, the church, although it wasn't called the church at that point. It is, the church is called the church for the first time in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. 
the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. That's another name for cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. I love what Gamaliel says, so wise. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Did any of you see that picture in the news? I, I can't remember if it was earlier this week or the back end of last week, but it's that guy and he's running down, it might be like Time Avenue or something in New York, and he's like snogging every girl that he sees. Sort of. Maybe he wasn't snogging every... But you know, it was the, it was the end of the war and, and all the sailors had kind of got off the boat or whatever. And you know... It, does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like this iconic picture. And, and apparently what happened is, you know, it wasn't too much of a, a preacher's license to say snogging every girl. This guy was like running down and he was like in his sailor's uniform or whatever. And he, he was just grabbing every nurse, okay? Maybe he hadn't even been to war. He just thought, oh, I'll dress up as a sailor and I'll get to kiss nurses. But like he was grabbing every nurse and he was kissing them. And, 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 like, and the photographer who took the picture, because what happened is the guy died last week. And, and the photographer who took the picture said that he saw him running down this road kissing every nurse. And, and so he thought, I'm going to have to kind of like get ahead of him and find another nurse. And so, and so there he was at the perfect moment. And he took this picture and it was completely acceptable. And years later, they, they tracked the two of them down. And they weren't mad, you know, this is not a romantic love story or anything like that. They didn't even know the picture had been taken. And, and she was saying, oh, there was nothing sexual about it. There was nothing uh, about it. And it was just, we were all so happy. And this guy just grabbed me and he wanted to kiss me. And, and, like, and that's amazing. It was the end of a war. It was something worth celebrating. Imagine, okay, imagine if Scotland won... Imagine if Scotland won the World Cup in football. Can you imagine that? I mean, okay, no, no, you can't imagine it. Okay, 
Just try and put yourselves in that place. Imagine that Scotland won the World Cup. Like we were in Portugal last year when France won it and there were like French people everywhere and it was just amazing and, and, and they were all hugging and celebrating and cramming into places. And, they were, and it was a little bit like that guy uh, who, who, uh, who, who just was just grabbing every nurse he could find. The war's over. We've got something to celebrate. I can remember a few years ago, um, and I was down at the Millennium Stadium, which is where Wales thrashed England yesterday. I just have to say that again. Wales thrashed England. Um, and, and fair play, England were terrible. Wales were awesome. Congratulations, Welsh people. We love you. We bless you. Um, come back next year. Um, <laughs> And, and, and I, w- I was there, and it was Munster against Bay Ritz. I had never been to Munster. But like 10 minutes into that game, it was as if I had been born in Munster because there were so many Munster fans there. And, they, and like me and my brother were there, and we thought we were there as neutrals. We suddenly weren't. We were part of something. We were hugging. We were high-fiving. We were doing all of that. There was something to celebrate. Go, you, if you go to a wedding, okay, uh, a Scottish wedding with a proper Cayley, not an English barn dance, which is just like, rubbish but a, a Scottish Kaylee and, and the first dance you do is like you just do it with a single partner and then as the evening goes on you, you partner up more and more and there's more of you in groups together in a bigger group and, and, and because there's something to celebrate we're celebrating a wedding and then it finishes with old Lang Syne and everybody in the room is basically linked because you're kind of like holding hands with somebody and you run into the middle and you smash the person opposite you it's amazing okay but it's like you know but like in Scotland smashing somebody is a sign of affection, isn't it? So, um, so and, and you, are, you are up close and personal because there is something to celebrate. Amen? Do you know there is something to celebrate here this morning? Do you realize that? Do you realize that the reason that we're set up like this isn't some fad of mine, okay? It isn't in order that we might just have things a little bit different. It isn't in order that we might uh, just kind of, oh, well, that's just going to be like some new little phase fad, whatever. The reason that we are set up like this is because we have something to celebrate, The reason we are setting up like this is because we have something to celebrate and we have the greatest victory of all time to celebrate the victory of Jesus over sin, the victory of Jesus over death, the fact that there is no tomb in Israel in which you can find the bones of Jesus. And we won't move to get up close and personal with each other in a way that we would move if Scotland won a World Cup, in a way that we would move at a wedding, in the way that that guy ran along the road just grabbing every person because he had good news. I just want to leave that challenge there with us. Okay, maybe what we'll do is we'll start counting people in. I don't care how many come, Okay? I care that the kingdom is proclaimed and I care that the Holy Spirit moves in and through his people. And if that means Southside on the outside getting a little bit smaller in order that the kingdom of God might explode in air, then so be it. But maybe what we need to do is count people on the way in and have the exact number of seats minus one. So you really have to squeeze in and get up close and personal. We are a family. If you weren't here two weeks ago, listen to that talk. 
Okay, if you weren't here two weeks ago, listen to the talk. It is about family. It's about my prayer and hopefully all of your prayer when you're holding somebody who you love. It could be a child, it could be a partner, it could be a friend. Because remember, like when, the, when we talk about relationships, we don't just mean uh, relation, you know, how much I love my girls or how much I love my wife. We're, we're not just talking about sexual relationships. We're not just talking about familial, blood-based relationships. We are talking about every relationship in this new family that God God has called us to be a part of and the love that I need to have for each of you and the love and this is a challenge for some of you the love especially hearing this sort of thing the love that you need to have for me is the same as you have for 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 uh, for the person that you love the most and the Bible doesn't just talk about how a dad loves his daughter and how a dad loves his wife and how a husband loves his wife it talks about deep and intimate friendships that are nothing to do with blood and that are nothing to do with sex, but are just deep, committed relationships between two people because they've come to realize that they are part of the family of God. And that is not just a family in some broad sense. It is up, close, and personal family. And so we need to make that our prayer. We need to make it our prayer that God would grow and develop that sort of love in us. And if you can't make that your prayer, then I want to suggest that your encounter with God is not yet where it should be. And none of our encounters with God are where they should be. Don't get me wrong. But like, but like Jesus says that he wants us, and this is going back two weeks ago. Jesus says that he wants us to have the same unity, the same fellowship, the same bond between us as him and the Father have. As the eternal Father and the eternal Son have. That is the sort of love that that. that, 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 that Jesus wants us to have for each other. And so, you know, when the father says to the son, oh, look, there's a couple of seats down the front, son. Would you in the spirit come and fill them? They don't say, oh, well, no, I'm okay at the back. I just want to stay away from you. They say, we're already there. We're running to be there. We're desperate to be there. We're desperate to be with each other. We're desperate to be a community that reflects God. And what we see in this passage, this one, I, I, I want to ask you just to, I want a show of hands, okay? And so like last week I said, you know, who wants to grow in discipleship before we then talked about the fact that growing in discipleship meant giving all of your money or meant being willing to give lots and lots of money away. So I'm just setting a timer so that I don't overrun. But um, I, I want another show of hands this week. And, it, and, and the question is this, okay? And it's a proper question and I want a proper show of hands. Who wants to see revival? Okay, fantastic. Listen to this. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Victorian Baptist preacher, recounted the story of how on one occasion he was preaching as usual when he found himself denouncing someone in the congregation whom he didn't know. Words came into his mouth describing how this man was cheating his employer, stealing from him, and apparently getting away with it. But he found himself saying this man should repent at once or he would be found out. At the time, Spurgeon was surprised and somewhat anxious. Where had this come from? Who was he talking about? He didn't even know the person he was denouncing. Who was he talking about? Why had it happened? But after the service, a young man came up to him in great consternation. Please, he said, 
Don't tell my master, I'll give it all back. The man repented, made full restitution, and the situation was saved. And Spurgeon was left wondering, pondering the strange reality that without asking for it or seeking it, he had been given a word of knowledge about someone he didn't know. And then the writer of the book where I came across that goes on to say that uh, in contemporary accounts of great preaching moments and revival in the church, they are the sorts of stories that we hear. And that's the sort of story that we have this morning. Perhaps one of the most uncomfortable stories in the New Testament. You know, I, I, obviously I'm not counting the bit where Jesus gets nailed to a cross for our sin. But, but, you know, in terms of, like, the stories that we love to tell and the bits of the Bible that we love to interact with. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira is one of those uh, parts of the New Testament that we're probably left going, oh, what on earth is going on here? What on earth is this passage all about? Why is it even there? Because we follow a God of love. And we follow a God who would never want to do any harm to his people. We follow a God who would never want to scold his people, who would never want to teach them a lesson. Amen? No, no, not amen. We follow not that God. That, well, some, some of us might and, some, and all of us at times might be tempted to think that that is the God whom we follow. And yet that isn't true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament, uh, you know, when people say, oh, I don't follow that God of the Old Testament, rubbish. You either follow that God or no God. He is the true God yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we come across passages like this, we can't just write them off as Luke having a bad day when he was putting together all those exciting stories in the book of Acts. We have to say, Jesus, what are you wanting to say to us through this book? And, and, and I love the way that N.T. Wright finishes his chapter on this book. He says this, if we took the underlying message of Acts 5 more seriously we might perhaps expect to see more of the other bits of Acts. If we took the underlying passage of, of Ananias and Sapphira, which is where my focus is going to be this morning, uh, rather than just the bits we prefer, we might see some of the other bits of Acts, the revival, the breaking out, the people coming to faith in Jesus happening in our communities as well. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to very quickly look at this uncomfortable, I mean, I don't. Frankly, I don't want to, but I am going to. I want to look at this passage. And again, in the context of this community, this community that I love and this community that I'm trying to love and this community of people that I'm saying to God, even when I don't love them, help me to love them more and all of that sort of thing. It's like, I love, heal my lack of love sort of thing. And I'm sure you guys pray the, pray the same also. But I, I want to just focus in very quickly on a few things that we take out of this passage um, and, and then I want to beg you, and we may or may not have time to do this, but then I want to beg you to make time to interact with what, with what we're going to take out of this passage. But, so I just want to race, few, uh, uh, excuse me, race through a few thoughts very quickly. And the first one is this. Satan can snare believers. Okay, and, 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 and I, I use that word snare deliberately. Satan cannot possess a believer. If you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, don't read this passage and think, oh my goodness, can I also be possessed by the devil? Because the answer is no. You are Christ's possession if you are in Christ. Amen? 
If you are a true follower of Jesus, uh, you have been, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Remember where Paul writes that. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are not your own because you are now God's possession. But, so, so, as God's possession, you cannot be possessed by the devil. It's just impossible. However, what this passage uh, perhaps teaches us is, is that we can still be ensnared by the devil. Or, or as one commentator puts it, demonized. Not demon-possessed, but demonized. Influenced by the power of, of the devil. And we see that in this passage. At the very beginning, Peter says, Ananias, how is it that you allowed Satan to fill your heart? How is it that you allowed Satan to fill your heart? And I want to make this suggestion. The reason that Ananias and Sapphira allowed Satan to fill their hearts was because they were jealous, was because they were self-centered, and was because they were seeking position. Because what had happened previously to this is Barnabas, the son of encouragement, had come and he had sold that field and he had given the money to the apostles. And, 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 And probably because of that, Barnabas was spoken well. He didn't do it because of that, but because of that, that was what resulted. And so Ananias and Sapphira see that and they think, we want a bit of that. I want to look good like Barnabas. I want people to speak well of me like Barnabas. And so what they do is they go and sell a bit of land and they take some of the money and they lay it at the apostles' feet and they say, here is everything. Have it all. All to Jesus I surrender. But the reality is that they're holding something back. And, 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 and don't be mistaken, right? This is not a passage about giving. You'll be pleased to hear. This is not a follow-on from last week in the, uh, where we talked about giving. So if you weren't here two weeks ago, listen to that. It's really important. And if you weren't here one week ago, listen to that. It's really important. But this is not a passage about giving. This is a passage about many things, but not giving. And the first thing is that even people who are seeking to follow Jesus can allow the devil to divert them. Even people who are possessed by God can allow the devil to pull them off track. And we, and we read that. So, so, when, so when it says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour, the, the devil doesn't need to devour non-believers. He's already got them right where he wants them, doesn't he? You know, when it, when it says that, it isn't talking about people who don't yet know Jesus. The devil already has them in that sense. It's talking about believers. The devil is prowling around looking for people to devour and those people are in this room. And they're in the other churches. You know, those people who the devil wants to devour aren't the people who are already distant from God or have their backs turned to God or are playing around with spiritual things or whatever it is. It is you and it is me. And, 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 And what we learn from this passage is not only does he want that, but it is possible for him to do that. Okay? But even more possible, 
even more possible, and this is the truth of the, of the teaching of Scripture, is that you can move away from that. It says in Scripture also that you'll never be tempted, uh, sorry, that when you are tempted, there will all, God will always show you a way out. When the devil tries to trip you up, God is always ready to remove that stumbling block. When the devil tries to get a hold of you, the Holy Spirit is always there to combat that to combat it. It says in Psalm 119, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God has given us his whole word so that when the devil tries to devour you, like Jesus did, you can say, away from me, Satan. But nevertheless, we need to take seriously seriously this fact that we are in a spiritual battle and the devil can ensnare believers. The second thing that we, uh, that we learn about the, in this passage is that lying to the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, um, uh, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some of the money you received from the land? And, and, so, and so the second thing that we pick up from this passage is that lying to the church is the same as lying to the Holy Spirit. Because we have no recording here of Ananias actually saying, Holy Spirit, I'm like, you know, here's my, all of my money. What happened is Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, like Barnabas, came and put the money at the apostles' feet. And what we're starting to see develop here is a theology of the church. What we're starting to see here um, is, is the very, early, as I said, at the, at the end of Acts chapter 5 is the first time the church is ever called the church in in the New Testament. And what we're starting to see is, is, is an understanding of what the church is. And friends, the church has got nothing to do with the building. The church has got nothing to do with property. It's got nothing to do with where it happens. That's why I prayed earlier, you know, that God is as present in this room as in the rooms that we've just left. And a lot of our, of our ecclesiology, which is, means, you know, sorry to use like the kind of poshish the theological word, ecclesiology, which is our like theology of the church. A lot of our ecclesiology, I want to suggest, is actually rooted in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. So we think of like coming into the sanctuary where God makes his dwelling. That's Old Testament. Okay? The New Testament reminds us, and we're going to come to this in a moment when we think about the temple, that the temple, that the dwelling place of God isn't a single place. But I mean, this was Old Testament as well. But it isn't a single place. It's everywhere. Everywhere is God. Everywhere is God's spirit. Nowhere we can flee from is where God is. But, and, and so what we see, but sorry, what we see in this passage is that a lie to the body of believers, a lie to the gathering is a lie to the church and is a lie to God. And what we're starting to see is, and, and this is so important, important is where God, uh, where, where the church, we are described as Jesus' body. And he is the head. And, and, it's, and it's like saying, when you lie, Ananias, to the apostles, when you lie to the gathering of believers, you're not just lying to people, you are lying to God. Some of you lie to me. And, and, and like, I'm not elevating myself here as pastor because some of you lie to each other. Okay? You might not know it. I just, you know, air's a small place, isn't it? Like, and sometimes you just know, oh, well, that person told me that, but I actually know that, or, or whatever. It, I, and don't worry, I don't go around, like, snooping on you and trying to find stuff out. But, but some of you lie to me. 
And some of you will lie to each other. And the terrifying teaching of this passage is that when you lie to each other, when you lie to fellow members of the church, that actually you're not just sinning against them. You're sinning against God. Because the church is not some overarching phrase. It is us. This is the place where the Holy Spirit has made his dwelling. Satan can snare believers. Lying to the church is lying to the Holy Spirit. I want to take that a step further and and suggest that that means that however we treat the church can also be how, well, not can be, is how we treat God. When we slander the church, when we speak badly of the church, when we speak badly of people in the church or direction of the church or anything like that, there is a right way to seek God together. But when you're just sat around a table or sat at home or wherever it might be or even just in your mind now, oh, what is he on about? What's he, you know, that that is actually against God. Not against me or anything else. It's against God because we we have to take this seriously. We are the temple collectively of the Holy Spirit who is in us. Satan can snare believers lying to the church or, or just broader how we treat the church is how we treat the Holy Spirit, is how we treat God. And then the next thing is this, that the Holy Spirit can and does and must root out sin and deceitfulness in the church. You see, like, and I know we're probably, yeah, we've got about five or seven minutes. So, so you're going to have to do the homework. You're actually going to have to go away and do this. But, but If you remember back in Mark's Gospel, we did a series on Mark's Gospel last year. And there comes a point in Mark's Gospel where Jesus goes into the temple and he says, this temple in which you, in which you, the the people of Israel think that this is God's special place, God's special dwelling. Well, actually it isn't because it's meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a place where only a few can go so far and women are out here and Gentiles are out here and only, you know, only a few special people and men at the right time of year can go a certain distance. And he says, this is not what the temple was meant to be and in a sense that is the beginning um, if not actually the culmination or well no the crucifixion is the culmination of the move away from the temple towards a new temple and the new temple is this and the new temple is the church Uh, but you see the thing about the temple what we have to remember is that it was set up in such a way that took sin really seriously which was why uh, people who were unclean could only go so far and why other people could go a little bit further and why one person with a rope tied around him in case something happened to him in there could go right into the holy of holies because they took seriously the holiness of God And what we see happening in Acts chapter 5 is actually a a reminder what Luke is trying to start to communicate. And N.T. Wright says, Luke is starting to communicate this, whether the people at the time liked it or not, and whether we like it or not. Uh, but, But what he's starting to communicate is that the church is the new temple. 
And we know that because it's the temple of Christ and that we are Christ's body. We are literally those with Jesus in us. Our our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That means this body, though collectively, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And God cannot have sin in it. Okay, sin and God don't go. And, and, and yet we get so used to worshiping this mushy version of God, which says that he loves everything about me. You know, actually, Dan has just walked back in this morning and he, and he prayed. You know, no, he didn't pray because I might have got up and stopped him. But he, he said, you know, I hope that nothing discomforts you or something like that. He was talking about the chair set up and then he said, you know, I hope you feel really comfortable in church this morning. I don't. I don't want to come to church and feel comfortable. I don't want to come and gather with you guys and feel comfortable. I feel deeply uncomfortable when I open up the scriptures. I feel deeply uncomfortable when I wrestle with this stuff through the week and throughout every week. And I would really value your prayers for that. I feel a sense of deep discomfort because God is showing me who I am and who he is. Because God is showing me how sinful and selfish myself is and how holy and perfect he is. And it's like we were saying last week, that, that perhaps one of the reasons that we don't love communion as much as we, as, oh sorry, two weeks ago, as much as we maybe should, is because we have lost sight of what happened on the cross. We've lost sight of the reality of what the cross was for, for our sin. Our sin that cuts us off from God. And there is nothing more important or or very few things. I don't want to say nothing because then somebody will come and say to me, what about that? And I'll be like, actually, you've got a good point. There is very little more important in the life of the local church than putting sin to death. Because Because when we sin, when we allow sin in our midst... We are hindering the work that God wants to do in us and through us. We are called to be a holy people. We are called to be a people who shine God's light in the world. I want to, I'm going to finish. Sorry, there's so much more, but I'm going to finish with just some verses of Scripture. There is so much more, but there's just literally not time. I want to pray, ask you for prayer, though, for next week, for the youth weekend away. I just have this growing sense of conviction in me that, um, so the theme for the youth weekend away is counting the cost. Okay, and uh, while I was away on holiday a few weeks back, I was... Dan had told me a a theme for it and I was really wrestling because I just didn't feel that was the theme that God wanted for it. The theme for the Youth Weekend Away is counting the cost because as a pastor and as a dad and as a follower of Jesus, I don't want us raising up 25, 30 young people who think that they're following Jesus and then suddenly get to a point where they realize there is a cost to following Jesus. Why did nobody tell me about that? And one of the things I'm going to say to them is, guys, we love you. And if you're not up for the cost, then that doesn't matter. We'll still love you, but you won't be following Jesus because there's a cost. So I want to ask you to pray for that. But I just want to finish off with some verses from Scripture. And I I want us just, just to start off here 
with the Beatitudes. Because you'll know that that Beatitude, it gets quoted at every, at every funeral that you'll ever go to. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we think, oh, well, that's amazing. God is going to wipe away my tears. And yes, he is, but not from Matthew 5. That's from Revelation. A day is coming when God is going to wipe away every tear. But the, the morning of Matthew 5 is a heart breaking at sin. That's what it is. If you didn't know that, go away, look it up. The morning of Matthew 5 is a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching sadness, sorrow at our sin. When you have that gut-wrenching, heart-splitting sadness and sorrow at sin, that is when you will know the comfort of God. When you weep at your sin, when you weep at your state, that is the comfort that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. So just to kind of kick it all off, blessed are those who mourn at who we are before God, for we will then find comfort. Romans chapter 8 and verses 12 and following says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. Colossians chapter 3. Says this at the very beginning of Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore. This is written to believers. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. That list there, by the way, is not exhaustive. You can't sit there and go, oh, I didn't fall into that. Put to death the things of the earthly nature. And then Peter writes this. I absolutely love this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, holy, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. He's writing to believers and he's saying sinful desires, these things that want to get in and rob you of the life that Jesus wants for you, but also the the witness of the church. These are real, real things in the life of genuine followers of Jesus. I could go on, but we're out of time. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 says this, God will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of hearts. That, friends, is Acts chapter 5 in a nutshell. That is what God wants to do in us and through us.
He is so merciful. He is so patient. He is so loving. He is so gracious. He is so holy. I want to finish with this quote from John Piper. He says this. If the band want to come back up. John Piper says this. Killing sin is not optional. This, and he's talking about the Christian life. This is mortal combat. Sin dies or we die. We refuse to settle in with sin. Do you refuse to settle in with sin? This week, and this is what I wanted to do, and this is, why, this is why church should last for three hours and not even 90 minutes, but like you guys have just got used to 90 minutes, so we'll stick with that for now. This week, I, I implore you, but I mean, the only person who it's going to cost anything to if you don't do it is you, not me, not these guys, but I believe it will, it, it will cost you, it will benefit all of us. Okay, but spend some time alone with God. Get the podcast just so you can go back over some of those verses that I listed. Ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light. Ask God to bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness. Ask God to show you what the sin is. You know, it says in, in one of the Psalms, I've forgotten which one, that God, you know, forgive my hidden faults because they're there. But I don't want hidden faults. I want God to bring them to life in me as uncomfortable as it might make me in order that I might become more like Jesus. The issue in Acts chapter 5 is sin against God expressed through sin against the church and it limited and it hindered but as you continue to read when it was put to death literally in that case the miraculous work of the church wow let's pray Father again I simply pray that what is not of you would fall to the ground, be blown away, not even begin to take root. But God, as uncomfortable as it might make us, may that which is from you take root in our lives. And would you transform us? Lord, we sing that we want revival. We sing that we want renewal. We sing that we want to see uh, the Spirit move through the nation and all of that stuff. But God, it starts here with repentance, with turning from sin, with putting sin to death. May we not settle for anything other than that which you call us to. Amen.